Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Science Fiction, a podcast for readers, writers, and lovers of science fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the A Spoonful of Sugar Helps the Indentured Servitude Go Down episode. My guest today is K.M. Spera, the author of Docile, which is set in a world where people can pay off their family's debts by working as something like indentured personal assistance to the ultra-wealthy. To make their near-enslavement less painful, most of the servants, who are known as dociles, take a drug, docilin, to help them forget. The publisher Tor describes Spera's debut book as a science fiction parable about love and sex, wealth and debt, abuse and power. And Spera describes the book on his website as really gay, as indeed it is. Spare's work has appeared in Uncanny, Lightspeed, and Shimmer, and his novelette, Small Changes Over Long Periods of Time, about a gay trans man who's bitten by a vampire, was nominated for Hugo and Nebula Awards. And Kellen Spera is on Skype with me now from his hometown of Baltimore. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. I had to uh, keep myself from laughing at the spoonful of sugar. (laughs) That was a wonderful description. Oh, I'm glad. I, I was torn between that and the Let's Talk About Sex baby episode. <laughs> okay. The Spoonful of Sugar, I think, is the winner. <laughs> yes. That's what I decided ultimately on, obviously. Well, congratulations on the publication of Docile. Thank you so much. Well, it goes on sale in a few days, and it should already be out by the time this episode drops. So everyone can go buy it. Exactly. And and I guess pre-orders are good, too, but it'll be too late by the time people hear the episode. <laughs> so this is your first novel. Why was this the story you chose to write? Well, like many, uh, this is my first published novel, but this is not the first novel that I chose to write. The first novel that I chose to write was real bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and is buried and locked deep in a trunk. This is the novel that I uh, gave myself permission to write. And by myself, I sort of mean one of my best friends uh, was going over my bad first trunk novel with me for what was probably the fourth or fifth total rewrite. And I said, you know, I'm working on something else right now. It's it's got a lot of sex in it real fast. And, you know, I think there's a real deep story in there somewhere, but I don't have it yet. And I described it to her and she said, that's what I want to read. Why aren't you writing that? And I, at that point, you know, sort of threw the first novel aside and just decided to go full force into the story, which became docile and, uh, you know, gave myself permission to write something that was unabashedly queer that had a lot of uh, sex and kinks in it, but that also dealt with a lot of serious issues um, that like sort of have afflicted our generation and um, a sort of terrifying peek into an alternate slash near future. 
Let's talk a little bit about one of the main characters. The book has two main characters, but maybe we can start with Elijah Wilder, who becomes a docile. There's also Alex Bishop, his patron, who is heir to the company that's made a vast fortune inventing and manufacturing docilin, which turns dociles into passive amnesic drones. So when the story opens, Elijah is going over the seven rights he'll have as a docile. Why is it important to point out that dociles have rights, like the right to vote and the right to adequate food and medical attention? And why did you choose to start the book that way? So they have rights as part of sort of the nefariousness of the situation that they're in. Sort of those situations where the lines of what's good for you and what you're consenting to and what's helpful and what's not are being like intentionally blurred by the people setting those rules. It's sort of like you're being gaslit by the system to say like, well, you are choosing to do this and, you know, you can still vote and people have to take care of you if you do this. And, um, you know, you have the right to check in with the Office of Debt Resolution if someone violates your rights and uh, they have to take care of your medical needs and feed you. So it sort of like makes it sound safe when it is not And I chose to start the book with this. It didn't exactly start this way. In my first draft, I sort of showed Elijah leaving, but like I really hammered home his recitation of these rights because um, for him, this is like a decision he's making. He looked into this. He's done the research. He saved the money to get himself a fake ID. He has memorized all the rules and laws associated with uh, what it's like to be a docile. So this is very intentional on his part. I wanted readers to get that sort of sense of the world and the structure that he would be walking into. And also to know that like, this is a very deliberate choice that he is making, which sort of later plays into the notion of, did he make that choice? Was he able to make another choice realistically? So it's all part of like making people feel kind of safe and okay and uh, determined, but then also, you know, sort of sweeping that out from under the reader later. And so why does Elijah specifically, and I suppose why would anyone more generally become a docile? He chooses to become a docile because it is very common in his world. The choices are work and try to pay off your debt, which is basically impossible, or go to debtor's prison, which he decides not to do, or become a docile, or marry someone richer than you, which also doesn't normally happen because no one who's rich is marrying anyone uh, who's poor because they're accumulating that person's debt uh, through marriage. And his debt is huge. It's in, it's three or four million dollars. Three million dollars. And that's nothing to so many of these uh, ultra-wealthy people in the book, but it's sort of like the principle of the matter for them. And what's happened in the world that's created so many people who are under so much duress because of their debts that they feel that consigning years, possibly their entire lives, as Elijah decides to do, he, he takes a lifetime term to erase this debt. You know, what, what, what has occurred to, to create this environment that so many people are willing to do this? In their world, debt doesn't die with you on any axis. So 
there's like a clause if you like look at your rent that says like if everyone in your apartment dies you don't have to pay the rent anymore. <laughs> it's like, how kind of you. Um, in this world, that would not happen. It would simply pass on to those who were legally related to the people that died um, to pay it. And it's that sort of thing that has happened for generations and generations. And it is mostly things like student loan debt, uh, medical debt, uh, housing upsets, et cetera, um, that have just been passed down for so many years now that families can't handle it anymore. You know, when it feels like five to $10,000, you're like, okay, if I work for 10 years and save and don't live too extravagantly, like I can pay that off if I have an okay job. But like once you start to hit like a million dollars or even half a million dollars, the likelihood that you could pay that off in your lifetime is outrageous. And so when families are in, you know, ranges like Elijah's, which is three million, uh, the only ways that he can even think to pay that off is to do something so drastic and dramatic. His mother before him had attempted to pay it off, but the docilin had a negative effect on her. Uh, it was almost like she's still on it, even though she stopped injecting it. So when he makes this decision to go and sort of like free his family from this burden, uh, and all the generations that come after him, he's doing, he's making a huge sacrifice. He just knows he's going to do whatever it takes, but he's not going to take uh, that drug because he refuses to lose himself like his mother did. Tor actually sent me a clip from the audiobook, and oh, it's so good. It's from the beginning, and there's a moment where Elijah is saying goodbye to his mother, and she is somewhat non-responsive I mean she sounds robotic and so maybe actually I wasn't sure how to use the clip but maybe I'll just play I'll insert that here so people can listen to that moment where he's saying goodbye to his mother before he leaves to go to the office where he is in fact signing up to become uh, a docile cool I slip the family photo into my pocket and tiptoe out of our room without waking Abby. Regret tugs at my heart as I close the door. I didn't even say goodbye. Not a word or a kiss on the cheek while she slept. Nothing. Not for her, not for dad. I linger at his bedroom door for a moment before going to the kitchen. Mom doesn't look up from the floor. She sweeps back and forth over the same worn down spot, even when I put my hand on her shoulder. Hey, Mom, it's Elijah. Hello, Elijah. I hold on to the moment when I can pretend she remembers I'm her son, and that it's not ten years of docilin bending her to politeness. I miss you so much. That's nice, she says, her voice smooth as fresh-churned butter. I wanted to let you know I'm not mad at you. I take the broom with no resistance and lean it against the wall. Okay, she smiles but her eyes are empty, expressionless. And I love you. Okay. I understand why you left us. And when you're better, someday... Okay. I pause. It would be easier if she didn't reply at all, rather than in that monotone voice, following the same script over and over. Someday, I hope you'll forgive me for doing the same. Tell me a little bit about docilin 
and what that is supposed to do and why it has made the Bishop family so rich. So docilin is a drug that I believe was alluded to earlier. It makes you eager to serve and it also makes you sort of forget what's happening to you. You're not aware of what's happened to you uh, after you stop injecting it. So on a practicality level, what that looks like is, you know, ads for becoming a docile might say, you know, pay off your PhD loans in three years, the time will fly. So it's like you start injecting it and then you sort of wake up in air quotes after three years. And so you've lost a full three years of your life. But it also was like taking a nap, right? You wake up after surgery, you don't have to experience surgery. But but three years of surgery is kind of nasty. But three years of surgery is kind of nasty. Um, the, bishop, the Bishop family invented this drug and continues to sort of reinvent it and create new versions of it, uh, like, like an operating system, every couple of years, every generation. And it's one of those things where it was rushed to market before, you know, how do you test what it's like for someone to take a drug for their entire lifespan. That takes 80 years. And uh, like many extremely wealthy people who are only interested in profit, they were not interested in fully testing the drug. And uh, especially for Alex, he is young and doesn't really have the full scope of that, like the impact of that settled into his view of it. So there are parts in the book where Elijah asserts that docilin is causing harm. And Alex is like, how dare you even say that? Like my drug, of course it works. And he thinks that he's helping people like whatever the motivations of his father and his grandmother before him, uh, who were the predecessors at Bishop Laboratories, Alex is wrongheaded, but also thinks that he is doing a good thing by putting this drug out into the world that he is helping people. So the notion that it would be hurting someone uh, really throws him for a loop. Um, so, I mean, docilin is, you know, people have asked me, would you take it? It's like one of the favorite interview questions. And I'm like, it's a trap. <laughs> I'm not going to answer it. Would you take it? <laughs> it's funny. I didn't think of asking you that question, actually. Good, don't. <laughs> like a lot of things in the book, I think, things are represented as good things. And on some level, somewhere, there is something good. I mean, if someone is going to be suffer a kind of humiliating experience or servitude, well, I suppose it's better to forget it. But of course, one shouldn't live in a world where one is ever subjected to that kind of relationship or one has to be debased or, I mean, I suppose not every docile is debased, but the power relationship is such as that they could be. They don't have a say. They don't have agency. Right. And so like some dociles are, for example, you know, doing construction work or some are walking around. So in the, in the Inner Harbor here in Baltimore, we have wonderful folks who are part of uh, the downtown partnership and they are available to sort of like answer questions for tourists and stuff like that. And in my version of this Baltimore, like dociles have been brought in to sort of replace that where it's like a helpful person walking around uh, who just knows everything. So there are lots of different types of jobs and roles that dociles uh, have 
And you're right. It carries that temptation of like, well, if I'm going to be talking to tourists, uh, you know, 10 hours a day, do I want to remember that? Probably not. It's a trap. (laughs) Elijah decides not to take docilin, and that makes him unusual. I mean, that's basically unheard of in this world. And the fact that he refuses to do so when his patron is Alex Bishop, who, as we've discussed, his family actually owns the company that makes docilin, that makes his refusal even more remarkable. But maybe we should discuss and pause for a moment. Why does Elijah refuse to take it? So uh, Elijah refuses to take docilin because he knows that it's causing harm. Uh, He has you know, seen it in his own home with his mother, who is not there like she should be. He can talk to her and she treats him as if he's a patron. And she has sort of like a role that she falls into, like sort of cleaning the house over and over again, etc. And he doesn't want that for himself. And he's seen other people, you know, that happen in various stages to people in his Uh, community and outlying communities in uh, Baltimore County. And he's just not interested in that. And he doesn't know that Alex Bishop is Alex Bishop. So that sort of makes it all the more delicious for me as a writer and all the worse for Elisha as a character. (laughs) Um, Because, and worse for Alex. I mean, he's humiliated when Elijah refuses, but he also doesn't show that humiliation because, uh, He says, you know, it's sort of worse to be caught off guard and worse to act humiliated. But it does put Elijah in a very unique position uh, to sort of see what truly goes on. I mean, we talked about what it's like, the temptation and the disaster versus benefit for a docile to take docilin. But, you know, for the patrons, it's like, yeah, I have a person who does what I tell them to do and is happy about it all the time you know, rub my feet at the end of the day, or like, can you get me directions to wherever? Thanks. It's like talking to an Alexa or a Siri. (laughs) Elijah starts out as this person who's going to stand his ground, especially on the issue of not taking docilin. And he seems to really know what he wants, even if he knows he also has to obey his patron if he wants to erase his family's debt. But then something happens. Even though he's not on docilin, the longer he's with Alex, he starts to lose his sense of himself. And eventually, it seems as if every last scrap of agency is lost to him. So what's going on there? What's happening to him? The thing is that Alex is also under pressure to prove that he can sort of handle not only a docile, but a docile that is uh, off-med, they call it, off-medication. And so he utilizes sort of behavioral modification. I don't know that he, he knows that he is training Elijah to behave a specific way and teaching him how he likes things and how to behave in public um, and when he's in his house. But I'm not sure that he really knows fully what he's doing to Elijah as he's doing it. And Elijah similarly, you know, tries to hold on, but there is a moment early, pretty early on when Alex does something I wouldn't call it nice, but it's not bad. And he's like, Elijah's like, um, what what if Alex's not such a bad guy? Like, there's no way I couldn't get to know him over the course of my entire life. I actually just read this 
a graphic novel last night called Hostage. And it's about, it's the true story of someone who was kept hostage for three months. And the types of things that you find yourself sort of like being Stockholm syndromed into when you have someone who has total control over you, you know, oh, they gave me a piece of bread today. I haven't had bread in forever. Like, you're so nice. Thank you. Please bring me more bread. I'll do good things. I'll behave. Um, so Elijah is sort of like tempted with rewards and pleasures and, you know, Alex hires tutors for him and like has this vision of Elijah becoming a companion. And so it's one of those sort of like gilded cage scenarios, like things don't seem quote all bad, but he is losing himself because of that. Because when you live so intimately with someone for so long, there's no way you can't. And also, Alex is consciously trying to train him. He's giving him rewards and sanctions, punishing him when he does badly. And Elijah, his personality seems amenable to that change. You know, like, I want rewards. I don't want punishment. And he slowly just wants to do everything Alex wants of him. And he just loses track of himself. Yeah. Another, I mean, part of this, and I didn't layer this in as strongly until later drafts, but I realized it was so important, is that Alex also, part of his contract with Elijah was that he gives his family $1,000 a month. And that's not part of Elijah's debt. So it's sort of a thing that can be revoked if Elijah doesn't behave. And Elijah's like, $1,000 a month is so much money, even though that is like me dropping a penny on the ground and just like keeping going. So he's unwilling to risk that. The reason that he behaves is because he wants his family to be secure. Uh, he doesn't want that $1,000 a month revoked. He doesn't want any reason for you know Alex to treat him any worse. Once he experiences punishment, uh, they're not fun. <laughs> they're things like kneeling on rice and writing lines and confinement. And I tried that kneeling on rice thing so that I would know how to write it. It is, is extremely painful. You know, I believed you. I was tempted to do it just to see. I, I was like, is it really that painful? But it the, hurts so bad. <laughs> but the way you described it, I mean, he has him kneeling on a tray of rice for a long time and the bits of rice get embedded into his skin. And I was convinced just by the way you described it that I didn't even have to try doing it to, to test what it was like. Good. Don't. <laughs> You've accomplished something remarkable in the story, I think, because there are no easy answers. Alex starts to fall in love with Elijah, but the story raises really important questions. Who is he falling in love with? Is he falling in love with the real Elijah or this man he's created through his quote-unquote training? And Elijah finds himself falling in love with Alex but is that because he's been brainwashed or does he have the agency to fall in love? And it would be easy, I think, to just say, well, the love has to be false because one of them had all the power. But your book isn't content with that as an answer. It really forces us, the reader, just as the characters have to, to grapple with these questions, which is a real challenge. And I imagine it was really a challenge to write as well, because you must have had to grapple with those issues. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. The book looks at the specific relationship between these two men, right? But the questions that are brought up between them are mirrored in their society and in ours. So if you 
you know, if you have strong feelings, there's no way they're not going to have strong feelings for one another. You know, they negotiate sort of within themselves what they want to call that. There are different points where they say, uh, I, I care for this person. I don't know if it's love, um, but I have strong feelings. And, you know, at some point we all just sort of commit to what exists, right? You say you live in a world where smartphones exist, right? And lots of smartphones are like made via like unethical like business practices, but it is very hard to exist without a smartphone in our current world. There are so many things that we're like plugged into that we all sort of just make the choice to do. So one of the points that Elijah makes nearest to the end, but this is not a spoiler, um, you know, he's negotiating with himself what his feelings are for Alex. And people ask him, you know, maybe you just like this kind of sex because it's the kind of sex you were taught to have. Maybe you just like Alex because he taught you to like him. Maybe you only like playing the piano. Maybe you only like these clothes. Maybe you only like these subjects because Alex gave them to you. And then you have, you know, he has to ask himself the question, but they're the things that I like. Do I have to not like the things that I like because they were thrust upon me. Uh, you know, there's lots that sort of like thrust upon us. Do we like iced coffee because it's spring and like the commercials are all over television telling us to like iced coffee. Um, you know, I like iced coffee. There's no purity in liking things, right? I mean, so many things are thrust upon us by people, by capitalism, by people who are making decisions above us and handing them to us and telling us to like them by people in our lives who are influencing us, um, at a certain point you just say, okay, I like this and I accept it. You know, I like this new song by Lady Gaga, even though I hear it a thousand times a day, and that's probably why I like it. But I just do. I enjoy listening to it. So we have to grapple, you know, with those tough questions. And of course, the kind of things that, that Elijah is grappling with is much harder than the Lady Gaga song that's played on the radio a hundred times a day. But I think that as long as we are constantly sort of questioning and making an active decision to continue to like that thing or to decide to try something else, that's sort of the best that we can do. And that is, you know, the whole there is no consent under capitalism hypothesis of the book, right? Sort of so much is thrust upon us that we can't necessarily do we consent to liking all the things and doing all the things that we do? Uh, no, we don't. But this is the imperfect world that we live in. So we just have to get out of it when we can. <laughs> well, it feels kind of subversive to me what you're doing, because it's true, life is much more complicated than we'd like to think it is. And I think in a perfect world, people think, well, you wouldn't fall in love with someone who abuses you or takes advantage of you. But we don't live in a perfect world, as you just said, and your book makes that very clear that people's feelings and circumstances, situations are not so clear cut. And it's fascinating to watch them both grapple with this as their relationship evolves. This is one of everyone's favorite hot takes right now, and I hate it. It's very much like people have um, this very black and white stance on what's okay to portray and that like characters should all be making good choices. The good choices that they've decided are good based on everything that's influenced their lives, of course, to that point. Um, so that's subjective as well. And I hate this and I've sort of like 
this has happened to me like in my other fiction. I'm very interested in where things are complicated and layered and nuanced. Um, in my uh, vampire novelette that you so kindly mentioned in my introduction, the protagonist is bitten by a vampire uh, against his will, and he chooses to sort of stay with that vampire uh, as a companion for the rest of the novelette. And people weren't happy about that. You know, he made a bad decision. He stayed with a person who hurt him against his will. I don't like that. And I'm like, well, okay. But I mean, if you don't know any other vampires, what are you going to do? You know, vampires have a different moral code than humans and et cetera. So like, these are the spaces we exist in. We don't exist in worlds where we can always make pure and good decisions all the time. At a certain point, there's this sort of resistance group um, that seeks to help debtors help themselves. And they sort of imply that he should be able to help them uh, resist trillionaires. And he's like, you're going to get me in trouble. Leave me alone. Not all of us can afford to stand by our principles. So that's tricky. You know, we all can't resist in the ways that we want to all the time. We all can't make all the choices we always want. Things are complicated and difficult. It's true. He's not a conventional hero, Elijah, because of that. At some point, I expected him to accept the rebels when he was still in a position where he could offer them lots of good intel. And it's only at a point where he really has nowhere else to turn that he goes to them. So it's realistic. He's not he's not some character who's always, as you say, going to do the so-called right thing. And, you know, with Alex, it was important to me that because he's in the same boat. I mean, he's in a very different boat, but he but he experiences similar uh, having to make decisions that aren't always necessarily right or wrong. For example, I really never liked in books and movies and TV shows when uh, there would be like the ultra rich person and they just give up their whole life and run away with like the ultra poor person that like they fell in love with, I don't know, in like the last month or whatever. <laughs> That's such a huge deal to give up your whole life. I mean, like, think about having to leave your family and think about having to leave your security blanket. It's terrifying. And I think that that is idealistic and easy to talk about and extremely hard to do in practice questioning everything you've been raised with. We all do that on various axes every day. And it's not easy. And sometimes it looks ugly. And that was important for me to portray in Alex, too. Well, you had a big task for yourself here, because the book is very evenly divided between these two characters. And they both undergo significant transformations during the course of the book. So I would think that's quite challenging to get so deeply into two different characters and track their evolution. I loved writing both of their points of view. <laughs> People are always sort of surprised when I say that Alex was the more fun point of view to write um, because they're like, oh, what? Horror. He's so bad. And I'm like, yeah. But as a writer, it's really fun to sort of play someone who is like hyper meticulous and like a perfectionist and high on himself and what he's done and his point of view is just as important as Elijah's point of view and you know you're right like Elijah like people will think of him as you know he 
isn't the typical protagonist in that he doesn't pull like a Divergent or a Hunger Games, right? And I realize those are both YA novels, but I read a lot of YA. Uh, <laughs> and he's a young guy. Yeah, I mean, he's young. He's 21. I forget that all the time. I started writing this book when I was in my 20s, and now I'm 34. So I thought then, like, Alex is 30. That's so old. <laughs> I'm, I'm older than him. By, I'm like, you're a child, Alex. And now he's never going to age now that he's I written know. down in a book. Yeah, I'm stuck with it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, they both have drastically different journeys and... I think that people will see themselves in both Alex and Elijah, both in the good and bad things that they do, in the hard decisions they make and the brave decisions they make and also the ugly decisions that they make. Obviously, Elijah has the moral high ground, but, you know, like you said, he doesn't make all the good and expected choices. He's not somebody who, like, is going to... Uh, you know, break into Alex's computers and steal his money and like throw it out the windows. You know, he's trying to survive. And that's very real for a lot of people. Okay, so now we have to talk about the sex in the book. Yes, please. And (laughs) I was like, okay, there's a lot of very explicit or very erotic sex. And I was thinking what am I going to ask about that? And I guess I should say, parents, if you're listening with your kids, just know that we're going to talk about sex. I don't think we're going to get super explicit, not not the way it gets super explicit in some (laughs) scenes of the book. Although I haven't read Fifty Shades of Grey, but I bet you have because... No, I haven't. Well, it's funny because I know it's about a rich guy and there's kinky sex. And so I thought I went to see the movie with a friend from work when there was this like old historic sort of theater that never really had a lot of business in the end. And we like snuck in bottles of hard cider and snacks and like just sat there with like three other people in the audience and like sort of laughed our way through it. Um, (laughs) So you got a feel for it. I mean, yeah, I mean, who doesn't know what it's about? I so I work at a law firm and I was editing a journal for one of the attorneys that I used to support one time. And it was like the book of the month. And I was like, this is a newsletter for it's a professional newsletter for attorneys. And like Fifty Shades of Grey is the official book. They know that's like got a lot of sex in it. Right. And (laughs) but I mean, you know, whatever. Let people read what they want. I wouldn't talk about it at work, but (laughs) I was trying to think what podcast-worthy question could I ask about the sex scenes, and it occurred to me that there's a lot of different kinds of sex scenes in the book. There's some that's very clearly about power and control, about Alex controlling Elijah and dominating him and having him do exactly what he wants him to do. There's one scene where Elijah is ordered to perform fellatio on Alex's good friend in public at a party. And it is incredibly debasing and humiliating. And then there are sex scenes that seem genuinely loving and genuinely warm and passionate. And there are some also that are more innocent and exploratory where Elijah is learning about what he likes and doesn't like. And I thought, you know, each sex scene seems to represent a different kind of Elijah or a different state for him as he evolves and moves into and out of this state of servitude and tries to find his own agency and find himself. 
I don't know if you'd agree with that. It's my trying to find deeper meaning in what was very raunchy and erotic and I thought very well written sex scenes. So that's another question I have for you is were those scenes easy to write? Were they hard to write? Did they require research? <laughs> <laughs> I write sex a lot. Uh, it you know, when people talk about like the things that they like to write, uh, some people love to write, you know, swords fighting and like some people like to write thrills and some people like to write violence and I like to write sex scenes. If you uh, look at any of my previously published work, it pretty much all has sex in it and that will continue. Um, my editor and I have a good conversation before every book where I'm like, all right, let me tell you all the kinks that are going to be in this next one. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, when I when I wrote this, I was very specific about what sort of like specific sex acts could happen at what point in time. So it's not an accident. For example, Alex doesn't, <laughs> I don't know how specific, <laughs> here we go now, but like Alex doesn't perform fellatio on Elijah, even though Elijah does it to him. And this is like sort of basing it off some really like bad sort of like, oh, like, top penetrative like that's the power seat like this goes back to like sort of the greek and roman concepts of like gender and social status and that was sort of where i drew my inspiration from that from i obviously disagree with it it's clearly toxic but you're right so the scenes sort of progress with alex showing elijah that sex can be pleasurable and uh him teaching Elijah what to do and Elijah experiencing public sex. And then uh, he sort of has to figure out what he likes. I mean, sex has been such a huge part of his life that like all, and he's been so sexualized for so long that like there is a point where he has to figure out <laughs> who am I under all this? So some of those scenes that feel loving and exploratory genuinely are and some of them are that sort of spoonful of sugar sweetness of docilin uh, making the medicine go down this feels loving but it is actually horrific because it feels loving you know as their relationship progresses they sort of start to act like boyfriends almost which is troubling to pretty much everyone except for them you know, there are scenes where it's almost like they're making love, in air quotes, you know. But that's the nefariousness of it, just like Docile's having rights, just like Docilin being advertised as, you know, making it easier. All this sort of, like, poison with a bow on top. So even though I do love writing sex scenes and would just, like, come up with a million and one concoctions, so many have been deleted from the drafts over time uh, that just didn't just didn't fit you know every scene in there exists for a reason and is like part of either sort of alex's plan or is part of alex's plan failing or is part of elijah learning who he is as a writer how do you keep the sex scenes fresh and different i mean you've obviously had a lot of experience with it but one would think, although maybe it's not true and maybe it just shows my naivete, 
<laughs> my lack of experience in this world as a as a married man married to my husband for many years but how do you keep it fresh and creative and there's only so many words you can use and i would think so many things that can be done but you're going to tell me that's <laughs> not true and there's like so many more things that could be done there's so many things uh, <laughs> i mean uh i think in docile especially if you're plotting out very specific acts then the scene is going to be focused on one thing each time, right? So there's going to be the first time they have sex, which is focused on Alex establishing dominance, like a dog peeing on the corner of a street. And then uh, there's going to be the time where Alex wants Elijah to know that there can be pleasure if he performs well. So, you know, there's going to be a rimming scene. And that's the whole, like, there's an emotional thrust uh, that accompanies that sex act and uh, then you know there's going to be a scene where Alex is like all right so um, I've done things to show you that this place is nice sometimes now I want you uh, to learn how I like it and go down on me and so like there is an emotional like agenda in the scene that accompanies a very specific act so as long as you can nail the emotional thrust of the scene then every sex scene is going to be different, you know, by virtue of the dynamics have changed between the people. You know, I'm trying to like sort of count them now, like one, two, three, four, five, six. I mean, there's probably like between six and 10 uh, sex scenes in the book. And in my next uh, novel, there are fewer, but I know that when I plot them out, you know, just sort of the same way as I do docile, it's making the encounter relevant to the plot and to the character arcs. I mean, that's the secret, right? That's how you get to write so many sex scenes is making all of them emotionally necessary. That's how you trick your editor. (laughs) Makes a lot of sense. So let me ask you about the setting, which is in the city of Baltimore, in and around the city of Baltimore. And I know that's where you live. Is it as simple as that? Is that why you chose to to put this world in the Baltimore world? So it mostly is. I I love you, New York, but I've just read so many books set in New York that like I just could die before I read another one. <laughs> like people live other places, right? It's a love letter to New York. And I'm like, I support that you love New York, but I like it fine. A lot of it is just that this is where I live. This is where I grew up. Um, I came back here. I like it here. I see no reason not to set everything I write here. Also, I find it very hard to like, so for me, the relationship between the characters is number one and how hot things are is like number two and like the plot and the characters, you know, like they're sort of there too. And then like the setting, I'm like the kind of person who can very much just like write in a white walled room and then be like, Oh crap. There's stuff here, right? I should fill that in. That is much easier to do if you know the places that you're writing. So I almost always set my work in Baltimore if I can. But I also have set it in places that I've lived. I went to school in Pennsylvania. And I went to school in Massachusetts. And so, like, you know, Google Street Maps is only so good. Um, but so I really like to sort of dig into the place by having spent time there. So the aspect of this answer that is not related to I live here and I like writing places that I've lived is that the 
Baltimore preppy aesthetic is like part of the antagonist sort of like society, right? Um, so all these trillionaires in the book that are the ultra wealthy Alex's friends, family, they all sort of dress this very specific way. It's very like Lily Pulitzer. And that was very much like a fashion that I grew up around, even though I couldn't afford to partake in it. And even though I went to a great school that taught me a lot and I, you know, was surrounded by many nice people, that sort of like hyper preppy fashion and aesthetic pervades trillionaire culture. It's it's very bright. I love that it's very bright. Um, because one of the things I do love about preppy aesthetic is that for men wear all kinds of colors. There's no sort of like men wear drab colors and um, black and blue. And that's how you know they're real men. Like men wear pink a lot and lavender and canary yellow and salmon. You know, that's why the cover looks the way it does. (laughs) It's a salmon color and the guy pictured whose face is kind of whited out, is bluish colored. Yes, it's very colorful. Yeah, and the hard copy, if you take off the jacket, the like actual case is a navy blue, and there's a beautiful rose gold uh, metallic emboss on the spine. And like those are all colors that sort of come from this social class. And so I just sort of like injected this aesthetic with steroids for Docile. It is an existing aesthetic that is associated with a very specific kind of wealth and community and social class in Baltimore. And I just made it bigger and brighter. And so what's next for you? What are you working on now? Or what have you finished? Is there something else going to come out soon? So I have three books under contract with Tor.com Publishing. And I'm so excited about all of them. Um, Obviously, Docile is the first. There's no sequel. (laughs) People want to know if there's a sequel, and my response is, haven't those boys been through enough? Just let them live their lives. I would say so. Let them let them go. Don't make me solve the debt crisis. I don't know how. If I did, the world would be a better place. I'm just pointing out the problems. Um, <laughs> so uh, my second book, which I am finishing up edits on now at this most convenient time when I am also doing a lot of book promo, is uh, we haven't announced the title yet, but it is about a guy who is raised in a cult that teaches him that he has magic powers and that when he reaches a certain age, he will go into the world and save humanity from monsters. But then his partner goes out on this quest before him and betrays the cult to the FBI. And uh, he is forcibly liberated before he can go on his quest. So uh, the novel is uh, him meeting a cute, queer, nerdy cosplayer and deciding to go on that quest to find out whether monsters and magic are all real, like he was raised to believe. I'm so excited about it. It sounds so original and amazing. Thank you. My, I hope it lives up to it. Second books are very hard. <laughs> My third novel is actually... A eight weeks later, dot, 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 after my uh, trans uh, vampire novelette ends. Very excited to get back into this one. It's about Finley Hall, who is a, a gay trans man. And he, you know, was given eight weeks of unpaid leave uh, to transition into a vampire, which is very hard. And so... Is that under the Family Leave Act that qualifies? <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to have to work that in. It's like the Vampire uh, Family Medical Leave Act. Uh, 
if I use that, I'll thank you. <laughs> so he is now, you know, he's still struggling to get his life together and he becomes stuck between sort of the life that he's worked for so hard like as a trans person to like get all of his documents together and to feel safe and to like be able to live his damn life. And also uh, between uh, the vampire, the vampire bit him, his name is Andreas and he is an ancient Mediterranean vampire and his vampire friends uh, have sort of like a queer separatist vibe that Finley really digs, but they also have like a blood hierarchy vibe that Finley doesn't dig. (laughs) So, um, you know, he's sort of stuck between these two lives. And it's a story sort of about being like a millennial vampire. He's got a lot of sass. Um, He's a brat. And I just love his voice. And I can't wait to sort of get back into a protagonist who has got that sort of like fun, angry spunk. Another one sounds fantastic. And don't tell me you actually know the the third book uh, as well is that you, you have another book do there are three under uh, three? Oh, that's the third that's oh, that the was the third oh, okay yeah yeah yeah. boy i thought you were gonna say and then you have another one and the whole plot's <laughs> all written out or thought you through know, and... i keep a note in my phone called serious novel ideas and <laughs> not all of them make it well good for you very impressive and a very impressive debut novel i have to say it was definitely met all the qualifications for I think success. It was a page turner. It's got a lot of hot sex and a lot of smart ideas in it too. Thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you for coming on New Books and Science Fiction. Absolutely. I love podcasts. I love just chatting with people. I love listening to podcasts and um, it's been a real pleasure. Well, I have been talking to K.M. Spera about Docile. It comes out from Tor on March 3rd and that is in the future from this moment when we speak, but it will be in the past to anyone who is listening to this recording. So that's like the magic of podcasting. Please subscribe to the show if you don't yet. Uh, Consider showing some love for the podcast with a review. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. I'm Rob Wolf, and I produce and edit the show. The New Books Network is the love child of editor and founder Marshall Poe, who is aided and abetted by co-editor Leanne Wilson. Keep buying and reading books, and thanks so much for dropping by.